Well, here we are on a routine Sunday. Missions conferences ended. Sunday night seminars over. Bible bowl is ended. Routine Sunday today. And you know, we were just commenting as the elders were praying before the service about Bill. Think about this guy who sometimes preaches on Sunday morning, then comes back and plays with kids on Sunday night. Can you imagine the energy that that stamina that takes? Bill's an amazing guy to be as old and crotchety as he is and can still (laughs) do things like this. (laughs) You know, the Holy Spirit either clearly directed Jim or clearly directed me, and I trust directed both of us, because the songs that were sung today fit so perfectly the passage that God would have us look at this morning. Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, and which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And then the rest of the verses of that chapter elaborate on that, but now we move to chapter 3, which continues the thought. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. The Apostle Paul, in a way like a lawyer in a courtroom, was presenting an argument refuting those who had come to the Colossians, saying that in order to participate in the new covenant, the covenant of Jesus Christ, there were certain elements of the old covenant that you still had to honor. For example, you had to be circumcised. And Paul put forth in the verses that we have just read a proposition, and that's a proposition I want to put forth this morning, 
Let me, in everyday language, present Paul's argument as it is sequentially presented here. First, those who would press upon the necessity of complying with the Old Testament rite of circumcision in order to partake of the covenant with Christ, they're wrong. All, both male and female, who have been buried with Christ in the watery grave of immersion, in that act received supernatural circumcision. As we come out of the grave, one is figuratively and supernaturally raised up with Christ. This happens when one has faith in God's working. Otherwise, all one did in immersion was to get wet. Therefore, those who have been immersed are in Christ and are complete and nothing else is needed. Added elements from the Mosaic Covenant are irrelevant. Because of this, the certificate of the debt of sin which has been issued against us, it was canceled. It was nailed to the cross. Since we have been raised up with Christ, and today he is seated on the right hand of God, we should seek things above. Thus we should live our lives with our minds set on things above, on eternal values, rather than having them set upon things that are upon the earth. Now it's that last conclusion that I want to talk about this morning, setting our minds on things above and living our lives by eternal values. First, why should we live according to eternal values? Why should we set our things, our minds upon things that are above rather than things that are upon the earth? Well, first of all, of course, the things that Paul just listed in, in the propositional statements, these are reasons, but there are others as well. Because our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The word citizenship, and we've spoken of this before, but we repeat this morning, it is politema, and that word really means commonwealth. As we live upon the earth, we have a commonwealth with heaven itself. That's, that's really who we are. We are not citizens of this earth. We do not share a commonwealth with this world, but with the city of God, where our citizenship really is. And then in Philippians 1.27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, and so on and so on. And the word conduct is the Greek word polituiste. Now notice polituma and polituiste. You see the thing? Literally, that means live as a citizen. Think about that. Our citizenship is in heaven, and Paul says, since it is, then live as a citizen of heaven, not as one who is a citizen of this world. Hebrews chapter 12, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the myriads of angels. That's our citizenship. That's the city 
where we really dwell, and yet we as aliens are here upon the earth. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The old song, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I don't feel at home in this world anymore. Don't we feel that way sometimes? Oh, God, if Jesus would just come and we could all go home. Like the patriarchs listed in Hebrews chapter 12, we're not looking for a city made with hands. But we're looking for that city that God has prepared. That city which all present day redeemed citizens, or rather Christians, are citizens of that city. So one reason is because our citizenship is in heaven. Another is because of the very temporary nature of this life. We're blessed when that becomes reality to us. Happened to me when I was five years old. Let me tell you the story. I don't know why it happened. But one night, the house was dark. The house was silent. Down the hall, my three-year-old sister was asleep, and in another bedroom, my mother and father were asleep. Everyone was asleep, but I wasn't. And as a five-year-old little boy, I lay in bed that night and began to think about death. And I wondered, why would a five-year-old child think about death? I don't know why. I didn't know anyone who had died. I'd never been to a funeral but for some reason on that night, I lay awake and thought about death. I thought about the grave. What would it be like to have my body put in a grave? Childish thought. And I thought about eternity. And I finally got out of bed and went down the hall and approached my mother who was sound asleep and I grabbed her nightgown and began to tuck it. Mama, Mama, wake up. <laughs> I don't want to die. <laughs> I have no idea what she thought. But in her drowsiness, she rolled over and said, Jimmy, that's a long way off. And that's all she knew to say. <laughs> and I went back to bed and throughout the night lay there and thought about death. You know, from that time on, one of the designs upon the wallpaper of the room in which my life has been lived has been a constant awareness of the temporary nature of this life. I was doing some record keeping this past week, and, and I have a journal in which I write down everything I've done in ministry. It surprised me. I noticed I performed a hundred and 77 funerals. Funerals are a blessing to preachers because they remind you of the sobriety of what it's all about. This world, this life we're living is temporary. 
In that vein, Jesus said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and thieves break through and steal. But rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not corrupt, and thieves do not break through and steal. <laughs> Eternal treasure, not the temporary treasures of this life. Another reason is to think about how Paul pictured life. He pictured life, I, I, I don't know how many times, I quickly could think of four times in which Paul pictured life as a race. And I jotted them down, 1 Corinthians 9, Galatians 2, 2 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 4. Sometimes Paul used that figure to talk about the fact that when you run a race, you have to run it according to the rules. Another time he, he said, you know, when you're running a race, you take off all weights, you strip off everything you can so nothing will hinder you in the run. Another time he, he illustrated it by, it was illustrating perseverance that you press on whatever it takes to rush toward the goal. Another time he used it to illustrate the glorious Stephanos, the crown of glory that awaits us when we finish the race. But the point is this. A race is a timed event that leads to a goal, to the finish line. Finish line, and so it is with this life. You know, in this church, we've had the funerals for some for whom life was just a sprint. In a sprint... <laughs> The runner runs flat out and saves nothing. And almost before it starts, it's over. We've had the funerals in this church of some very, very precious young people for whom life was a sprint and they went out with glory. We've had the funerals of others for whom the race was one of mid-length. They have gone past that intense running and now with a little more wisdom have run at a more sensible pace and in the midst of running they reach the finish line and there are others whom we have seen suffer suffer go through so much and yet they kept running then then the finish line. You know, whenever we have the funeral of one whose citizenship is in heaven, we cannot deny the fact there's a hole left right here and there's grief. But oh, what celebration. <laughs> the race is over. They don't have to run anymore. The reward is theirs. But as Paul said, the race has to be run according to the rules in 2 Timothy 2.5. If you're running the race with your mind set upon the things of this world, you are not running according to the rules. We run with our mind set upon things above. Now we need to pause a little bit and talk about what living 
life by eternal values is not, because sometimes that's confusion. Living our life with our minds set upon things above does not mean withdrawal from this world. And there are a lot of people that do that. They go off on a mountain to escape the world or go off to some kind of a convent or the Desert Fathers headed off in Egypt to get away from the world. 1 Corinthians 5, beginning with verse 9, Paul wrote, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with the moral people, but I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. Actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person or covetous or idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler and so on. Paul said, I, it's, it's wrong to think you're supposed to go out of this world. Stay in the middle of covetous people. Stay in the midst of immoral people. Stay in the midst of idolaters. That's where God has called us to live. It does not mean when we have our mind on things above that we withdraw from this world. It does not mean we become so, as some have said, so heavenly minded we are no earthly good. Think about this. The Sermon on the Mount is a manual on how to live in this world not how to escape from it. When you read the epistles of of Paul and Peter and James and Jude, you notice a huge amount of that content, perhaps most of the content, I've never really stopped to count it, but so much of the content is how to live in this world, not how to escape with this world, from this world. Living with our minds set upon things above also does not mean asceticism. Now, I was surprised in a group a while back I used the term asceticism and somebody said, what's that? Well, I assume everybody knows what asceticism is, but in case you don't, and, and I'm not putting you down if you don't because you just haven't had a reason to know what that word means, I suppose, but asceticism means we deprive ourselves of the joy and pleasure of this life. And you know, those who say that's what Christianity consists of, you're speaking a lie of the devil. You know that? (laughs) That's what Paul said, 1 Timothy 4. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own consciences with a branding iron. Now that's a pretty serious description, isn't it? Men, who are they? Well, these are men who forbid marriage, abstain, uh, advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Paul says asceticism is a doctrine of the devil. We are to enjoy the blessings God has given us, whether it is in the conjugal relationships of marriage, uh, eating food, so on and so on. These are blessings God has given us. Colossians 2.20, If you died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, 
Why as if you were living in the world? In other words, you died to those. Why are you going back and living as if you hadn't? And what are these? Decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use according to the commandments and teachings of men. Now there's no need to labor this point. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Thank God for the pleasures he's given us that we can enjoy with thanksgiving as the gifts he's given us. Yes, Jim likes Mary. <laughs> Was that you clapping, Jim? Oh, all right, yes. Kevin, you have yet to find out that joy. Uh, and I don't know if you're even supposed to. God may have some other plan for your life. <laughs> uh, Esther's not here, is she? But I want her to know that her marmalade is one of those pleasures. <laughs> I tell you, that woman makes the best marmalade anybody in the world. And for some reason, she just keeps me supplied. Well, what does it mean then to live with one's mind set on things above? How, how do we conduct our lives according to eternal values? Well, obviously... It means living our lives the way Scripture tells us to live, doesn't it? The Holy Spirit has given us in Scripture a description of what a life is like if that life is lived according to eternal values. So we need to read the Word of God, to study it, to memorize it, to imbibe of it that as we plant it in our hearts, it just becomes nature uh, to live that way. It also means, as we have said, enjoying all of the blessings, but we must be careful that we do not allow them to own us. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Not that I speak from want. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and secret of going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. And in passing, I want you to notice, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. doesn't mean you can get in a uh, street where there's busy traffic and you can gun your motor and saying, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me, so I'm going to create an opening in traffic and get out. That's not what Paul's talking about. <laughs> He's saying, I can be hungry and I can be full. I can do it all. I can be in both states because Christ is strengthening me and that's where my strength lies, not in abundance or even poverty. Christ gave him the strength to be prosperous, not be owned by the prosperity. He gave him the strength to be in poverty, but to be content in that poverty. That's what Paul was writing about. So, you know, the blessings that God gives us, we need to be able to put these on and take them off the same way we put on and take off a coat. In wintertime, you walk out, and aren't you thankful for that coat? Thank you, God. But something would be wrong with you if you go in the house by the fireplace and keep it on. 
time to take it off. If there's anything in our life that we cannot put on or take off at the appropriate situation, then something is wrong with that relationship. Blessings can become idols. And if something is so important to us that we can't do without it, wow. <laughs> Remember Jesus in a hyperbolic statement said, you know, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Better go to heaven with some parts missing <laughs> than to go to hell with all of them intact. Now that's a hyperbolic statement. He's making the point that there's absolutely nothing, nothing that is so important that it outweighs the importance of entering into God's glory. You know, that's a challenge. This morning as I was driving, thinking about the blessings God has given me, and I had the radio on, and I began to think what a great blessing radio is. Isn't that a blessing? You know, on during the week, if I'm reading the Word and meditating on Scripture or praying, I have absolute silence. But if that's not what I'm doing, if I'm doing bookkeeping or just doing writing or research, I have music on, 88.7, the classical station is constantly there. And then sometimes if I'm doing bookkeeping, it's New Orleans jazz and Memphis, Memphis blues. And Sunday morning, you know, at 7 o'clock, Southern Gospel is on from 7 to 12. So at 7 o'clock Sunday morning, I turn on 99.5 and listen to Southern Gospel until I get here. <laughs> you know, I thank God for the radio and I thank God for music, but if I can't sit in silence and meditate upon the Lord, if I can't sit in silence and pray, if I can't sit in silence and let the Word of God speak to me, then music has become an idol. I need to be able to put it on and take it off like a coat. Living by eternal values also means that we do not allow our human nature to determine what is worth fighting for, and what is eternally relevant. Having spent four and a half years in a rural church 38 miles north of Cincinnati, when we came, the church was going through all kinds of troubles. We spent four and a half years there. The church had grown in size, was very healthy, and then we moved on to be a little further up in Ohio, to be the minister of other rural churches, too. One at, preached at one at 10.30, the other one at 9.30. They flip-flopped every Sunday. I used to dream on Saturday night I went to the wrong one first. That was a nightmare. <laughs> on Sunday night, the two churches combined. We had a joint service, had a youth group with about 40. So I moved into that particular situation. Now, one of the churches was out in the country. That church had been established in 1823. It was quite... History. The other one was formed around 1900. That was in the little town. The little town had 450 people in it, but it was surrounding by farms, and so the congregation drew from many places. When I came, the church was divided. It was split in many ways. One thing was there were two funeral homes in town. When you died, you had to decide which one you were going to, and that kind of <laughs> made a little problem. 
One reason was because one of the elders owned one funeral home, his cousin owned the other one, so you can imagine how that affected the church. One thing that caused division was the organ. Now, it's interesting, visiting those rural homes, you would often go into the parlor, and, and in many homes, they, every house had, not every house, but many of them had organs. And they had the keys, and you had the stops, but they were pump organs. And so there was a pedal, some of them had two pedals, usually one that you pedal while you played, and that operated the bellows that forced the air through the reeds and pipes and so on. Not only did homes have those, but so did the churches. In this particular church, the bellows had worn out. And instead of calling the organ repairman, who, because most of them were getting old, he had pretty good business, they said, let's get modern. Let's get an electric organ. Well, there were some prosperous families in that church. <clears throat> the wives of two of the patriarchs, and they were going to each one chip in a bunch of money. And I don't know why. One of them decided, I can't remember, is it Baldwin or Wurlitzer? And the other one, um, what's another electric organ? Hamill. Yeah, that was, okay, Hammond, yeah. So I don't remember which is which, but one wanted one and one wanted the other. Now, neither of these women knew a cotton-picking thing about organs. But I guess one had been to Cincinnati and seen one, another been to Cincinnati and seen another one. So this one wanted this organ, this one wanted this organ, and they were so intense arguing which organ that it began to divide the committee and then divide the church. Now, can you imagine Jesus Christ sitting next to God the Father going through great angst as to whether or not that little, that little church had a Hammond or a Baldwin or a Wurlitzer? As a matter of fact, it's hard for me to imagine his wringing his hands over whether or not he even had an organ. <laughs> but that became an intense battle in that church, fighting over something that has absolutely no eternal value. <laughs> you know where I have to watch that? Music. Now, I'm of an age that there's a particular kind of music that I can sing with gusto, and there's another kind of music I have to work to sing. Now, you younger folks like this one, <laughs> and I tend to go with this one. I have to be very, very careful that that never become an issue in the body of Christ. Some of us like lemon pie, and some of us like chocolate pie, and some like rhubarb. But whatever my taste is must never become an issue. <laughs> it's my taste. We should never apologize for our taste, but neither should we ever seek to impose our taste on others. That's, you see, the difference between living, focusing on things of the earth and eternal values. Living a life focused on eternal values means that the Great Commission, the proclamation of the gospel, always remains paramount in our lives. You know, you've heard this quote, Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. 
And you hear people say, Francis Assisi said that. Did you know he never said that? All kinds of scholars have researched and tried to find any place he said that, and no one can find it. The first time that was ever, ever written was in the 1990s. It was first written by a man named Steve Sorgen in a book called Conspiracy of Kindness, A Refreshing New Approach to Sharing the Love of Jesus with Others. That was a popular book. <laughs> Another one that was read by Missions, A Short-Term Missions Boom, A Guide to International Domestic Involvement. That was 1994. I, I went through and I copied all kinds of places, but it's interesting that was never heard of before the 1990s. Yet how many times have you heard from pulpits and teachings, people think they're so clever, getting up and saying, you know, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. You cannot preach the gospel without words. You just can't do it. You know, humanists do good works, secularists do good works. Bizarre sects, S-E-C-T-S, do good works. But unless we tell people that the way out of the dilemma that they're facing in life, the way to bring relief to that conscience that bothers them, the way to bring relief from the frustration that's coming from doing all the good works and religious stuff which never satisfies is what we read about in Colossians chapter 1. The beauty of the gospel, the good news. As Paul said, Jesus Christ has died to save sinners of which I'm chief. And I'm sure most of us sometimes feel like that word chief applies to us, doesn't it? Good news has to be spoken with words and good works will never, good works for people will not save them unless somehow it is accompanied by the words that tell them about Jesus and the way to heaven. I like the way Dale wrote and put it. I thought it was rather clever. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. <laughs> Remember he said that twice <laughs> during our missions conference. And any time we as a church get so caught up in housekeeping, any time we as a church get so caught up in anything, that proclamation of the gospel somehow gets put on the back burner or left out. We're not living by eternal values. The gospel song we used to sing in revival meetings, rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them from, with pity from sin and the grieve, grave. Weep for the erring ones, lift up the fallen, tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. Rescue the perishing, rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. When we quit, making that the paramount thing of our lives in our church. Somehow, we have lost living by eternal 
values. Therefore, if you have been seated, been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. (laughs) What a thought. Father God, we acknowledge our humanity. We acknowledge, Lord, that it is hard to keep eternal values in front of us when with our human eyes we see the things about us and with our human ears we hear the noises of the world. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you will help us to see things through your eyes, know your values, and know the blessing of living by them. Through Jesus, amen.